It's in the Old Testament that God's community, if you remember, of people uh, complained. And they grumbled and they whined that this holy Lord was never, ever satisfied. There might be somebody here today who feels the same way, either Christian or unchristian, that this so-called God of the Bible is never, ever satisfied. They in the Old Testament snidely grunted, and they said this about God. It goes, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Basically, if God can't just be pleased with that, if God can't be pleased with that, what in the world does God want? What does God want? I think that is probably one of the most crucial questions we could possibly consider, right? What does God want? Has anyone here actually slowed down enough to really, really consider this for our own lives? What does God want from me? We're very good at people, again, being in a room full of Christians and unchristians, knowing exactly what we want, right? Even unchristians are Christian. We know exactly what we want from the church community, what we want from pastors, what we want from faith, and what we want from God. But what does God want from us individually? I think back on the countless conversations I've been fortunate enough to have as a pastor in a church, from atheists to agnostics to irreligious to, to haters of God, and I could almost figure out with each one of those conversations, you could boil the frustration down to them being confused about what God may want. Almost every time, they're confused about what God wants. Some of the most infamous and famous atheists that we have, Richard Dawkins, I don't know if you guys have read The God Delusion, but it's in his God Delusion where he says that the Christian God merely wants us to suck up to him. That's what our God wants, a bunch of brown nosers who suck up to him so that we avoid eternal damnation. Or I think of Christopher Hitchens, and I think his, he's one of the most beautiful writers. We ever read his stuff. I don't know if I agree on his content necessarily, but Christopher Hitchens' writings, and he says this, all our God wants, or the God of the Bible wants, he would say, wants people to surrender their mind and surrender all of its reasons. Now, none of these things are true. This is far from what God wants. And these profound thinkers are on record saying, this is all your God wants. This is all your God wants. God wants something far more personal. And it's as simple as God is seeking to catch our hearts. And obviously I'm not referring to like that lumpy tissue thing inside of our chest. Like God isn't that freaky guy in Indiana Jones who's ripping hearts out. Like it's not what he's after. But if you think about it, God wants our hearts. Even writing that, I've got to be honest, even writing that almost is so campy, like Bible high school camp, right? I just taught at high school. I still can't get it out of my mind. This is the whole thing was this like Bible campy, like emotional high, Jesus is my boyfriend theology, right? When you say, when you say something just as simple as God wants our hearts. But I think if we actually understood and really, really dove down to really understand what heart translates to, I think we'll understand that that organ of faith, when the Bible talks about the organ of faith, it has completely revolutionized it. The Bible has revolutionized, revolutionized this idea of the heart, meaning all other faiths or even philosophies or systems of thoughts have never placed this amount of importance or power on what the Bible has with the heart. Think about this. And again, it transcends our modern-day minds of, again, of what we equate heart to. 
equating heart to emotions or emo or the lockbox of our affections or I love you with all of my heart or, you know, Valentine's Day paraphernalia. The Bible transcends that. Even the Greco-Roman world, world battled with this very well. It says this. The Greco- <laughs> they all say this. No, this is what it means. They would understand that the heart is right only, only the heart is right if it's, if it's subdued. Thus, if you want to grow... If you want to progress in strength or self-control or courage or wisdom, you learn to distance yourselves from your emotions and submit only to reason. But not so with God's word when talking or referring to the heart. The word would rather us see our hearts, us see our hearts as a metaphor for our basic orientation in life. A metaphor for our basic orientation in life. That's what God wants. So if I were to tell you, if we were to tell one another to discover where our commitments, our trust, and our knowings dwelled, whatever we lean towards or incline to or navigate towards, or whatever we put our directional effort in, the needle would be found in the seat of motivation, that being our heart. So again, it's how theologian and author J.R. Packer says it, and I think it's perfect. He says, it's the total human being that each of us is. Your heart is the total human being that each of us is. And the Bible would say that this is true not only of Christians, but unchristians. It's just merely who our makeup is. This is just who we are. So tonight as we get into this, and again, I apologize for my voice, but as tonight as we really get into this, this is where, this is where God wants to be. Your heart. This is what God wants. Look at, look at verse 11 in Acts chapter 16. We're going to see what God wants. The total being. So verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis. So they sailed about 156 miles in about two days. So they're hauling booty. Verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city, meaning it's very administrative region, city of the district to Macedonia and to a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we suppose there is a place of prayer. So they're figuring the city out. We believe there's probably a place of prayer around here. They're looking around. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, I totally get it. If this is your first time here, or if you haven't been around in a while, uh, you're essentially probably lost. Like, what in the world's going on if you're not familiar with the Bible? I get it. Don't be, don't be lost. I'll sort of fill you in basically how we go. But essentially, it's just this. Paul and a company go out on their second missionary trip. And they're going out to basically talk to anybody they possibly can, anybody who would listen about Jesus. Again, this is their second trip. These trips take multiple, multiple years. Multiple years. This isn't gone for like three weeks, you know, head out to Taiwan and come back kind of thing. They're gone for multiple years. And this is the first time we ever see the gospel or missionary group or whatever entering Europe. They're entering Europe. And they enter this very small, and they enter this town has a very small Jewish population. I think, the, I mean, I think the, the, the rule would be that you need at least like 10 Jewish t- men and women to actually have like a synagogue there. They don't even have that. So it's so, so small that basically they have to meet by the river. They just call it a place of prayer. It's not a synagogue, it's just a place of prayer. And so Paul and company find them, and they find this little bunch of people, and all these women sort of stand out, and then one of them totally sticks out of the crowd. And her name is Lydia. Look at verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. 
Now, I find this fascinating. A seller of purple goods. Some of you aren't going to care one bit. I think this is interesting. But for those who are seller of purple goods, for, for, for Lydia, that basically means she's like Coco Chanel. Like, she's a big deal. Now, get this. Purple back in the day would have to be extracted from purple fish. Did you know that? How to be extracted? I think, aren't, aren't girls' makeups made out of fish or something? Like the lipstick? I don't know. I don't know. I'm literally asking. I don't know. Like horse feet or something and like fish scales? Whatever. I don't know. But although, so it's normally from purple fish, but if you got the color of purple from a sea creature known as murex, then it was far more expensive. Now, you know those conch shells you listen to as a kid? You put it up to your ear? Remember that? And it sounds like waves. You're like, as a kid, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm sort of magical ocean phone, and you get all excited. Remember that? So imagine that, but with huge spikes coming out of it. That's what this murex is. And they would take this shell, and they'd crack it open, and they would take this mucus out, and then they would spread it out. I know this because I watched an 11-minute DIY YouTube video of how to do this. <laughs> and they take this out, and they spread it. And in the sun, as it dries, it becomes this really rich purple. So that's Lydia's job. It's disgusting, and it's a painstakingly long process, but that's what she sells, this murex-type, fishy, purple clothes thing. Okay, Coco Chanel, you're with me? But I think it's amazing. Then also what we need to understand is she, because of this, is a very affluent woman, a very wealthy woman. As we get further in Acts 16, we're going to find out she has a house. So to own a home, she's very, very wealthy. She's going to start having people meet there. And I want us to really notice this because I find this fascinating as well. It has no regards for our talk today. But notice that Luke constantly, our author of Acts, is constantly picking up on richer, more affluent, wealthy people coming to know Jesus. Yes, there's, some, there's, some, there's more impoverished people, but he's constantly pointing out a wealthy woman out of this crowd. That these people of influence are starting to become influenced by Christ. As well, Lydia's faith is important to know. I think it's a very important note because it says in verse 14, what does it say? A worshiper of God. A worshiper of God. So at some point, Lydia found the Hebrew, the, the Jewish faith, converted to Judaism. She found it attractive, and now she is worshiping God. And she's worshiping God, you know, sort of joining them for prayer in a van down by the river. Like she's just sort of like figuring things out. One person got it. I'm proud of you. <laughs> so it's these women. Again, I want us to also know it's women who gathered. Basically, that means either the men had separate prayer times or the men were just like, I don't want to hear from these missionary guys. But it's the women, again, in biblical narrative, leading the way. The future is female, y'all. Like, this is for reals. <laughs> you know what? We had our board here last week. You know what we had our board? You guys remember if you were here? They sat over here. You know what they're amazed by? The amount of young men we have in our church. They've seen churches all over this country, and they're blown away by the amount of young men who are here. This is, it's great how many young guys we have. Gretchen's so pumped. Yeah, yeah, all right. That sounds great. She's so pumped. Because it's just not normal. Limit, women, women lead the way. Always. Women are crushing it throughout the Bible, and even today, guys, whatever. Well, you don't know what I mean. Where was I? See? I'm sick. I don't know what's happening. Here we go. Where am I? Gosh, this is so unprofessional. Oh, the future is female, y'all. Got it. Okay. And then it says, look at the next verse. And then it says this, 
The Lord opened Lydia's heart. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This rocked me hard this week. Everything we talked about, that being our heart, the, the, the center of spiritual activity, the operations of all of life, and it says that, that thing, the Lord opened. So everything we just kind of talked about in the intro, that thing, the Lord grabbed a hold of and opened. This baffles me. It doesn't say Paul opened it. It doesn't say Lydia opened it. It doesn't say some special prayer opened it or some magical key or some crowbar opened it. God and God alone opens hearts. So if I'm going to stand up here and try to teach you all the Bible, I'm not the one who opens your hearts to receive, to change. That responsibility is not on me. You know how freeing that is? You know, on my way when I'm driving here from my house going, oh, Lord, and he has to remind me, this ain't on you. Okay? That word opened here is, it is such a rich, rich word that shows us that, that this isn't opening like how I would open like a lid to a KFC bucket. This isn't that type of opening. <laughs> I want us to, to think of this as a, as a pulling apart type of opening. So opening her heart, the Bible, or this word really means that it was opened, it was ripped apart. So imagine like a coconut, Right? When you open a coconut, you normally have like two halves and everything inside spills out. That's what this is like. It's an opening of something that has been tightly closed or sealed off or caged of sorts, which sounds probably like a lot of our hearts, right? And God takes that very tightly constructed organism and rips it open. And so for God to open Lydia's heart, or our hearts, Christians, this is you if you are a follower of Jesus, for God to open our hearts, it means that he cut that portion of us asunder. The total human being that each of us is cracked open, torn in half, torn in pieces. Out of all the miracles, I, I think, in the Bible that Jesus would perform or that the prophets of the old would perform, I think the opening of man or woman's heart is the peak. It is the absolute peak. What we're seeing right now is this unbelievable supernatural miracle. Because creation, fig trees, waves, fire, do not have a seat of motivation. They do not have a heart. But the creatures, the creatures, us, our hearts to be opened by anything other than the creature itself is surely the greatest of all miracles. At least to me. I love this description as, the old, as described in the Old Testament. I'll read it to you. It should be on the screens. And it says, I will give you, this is God talking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you, excuse me, a heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. This is why the Bible says that when this happens, angels rejoice. When this happens, angels rejoice. When stone becomes flesh, surely that is the greatest of miracles. Now, if you're here, and you're wondering, okay, but how? How does this actually happen? How does this happen? None of us here actually had a heart of stone, right? As cool as that would be. Like, none of us had, like, this cool, like, rock-hard heart thing, right? No. None of us here actually had a physical heart that God cut in half, right? 
So this thing that God wants, and we witness it here before us with Lydia, what is actually taking place with Lydia in that moment? As God, it says, is, is opening her heart. First, I want to make sure this. I think this is important to touch on just for a moment. I want to make sure that we understand that no man or no woman was ever converted or saved against their will. If anybody here is unchristian or irreligious and they're going, well, I believe this, it looks like your God, you know, sort of overcame her, right? And just made this happen. Nobody's ever been converted or saved against their will or against Lydia's will. God does not steal hearts. It is his kind and gracious way not to violate our wills, but to sweetly remove its blinders. I think Lydia in that moment saw for the first time truly what her heart was, who she was, and the good news of Jesus. Never is anybody going to be dragged to eternity kicking and screaming, like with God, right? Nobody's ever going to be dragged to God himself by their ears. Okay. So second, this will begin to answer a question about how it happens. Look at verse 15. And after she was baptized, so we have immediate obedience and desiring to tell everybody about who captured her heart and her household as well. So her entire household is like, yes, I want to trust in Jesus. She urges saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Did you guys see it? Did you notice it? This these verses are so simple. It's outrageous how simple it is. But basically, her heart is open, and then she gives herself away. She gives her life away. She is transformed. Her heart is transformed. Now, allow me to go deeper with this of how this actually happens. I would love for us as a church to really grasp and get that we are not just a bunch of philosophers. We are not just a bunch of thinkers. And we are far from probably just a bunch of doers. God has made each and every one of us lovers. Lovers. Creatures which can choose to love or be loved or reject love. So by Lydia hearing about the beauty and the sacrifice of Jesus for the first time, not only is she the first European convert ever, but she, as a lover, course corrects her love. She, as a lover, course corrects her love, forever changing her. It's like the compass of her, you know, it's like the needle of her compass completely goes from west to north in an instant. In an instant. I want Paul to explain this changing a little bit further. I'm going to read some verses that Paul says later on in the New Testament. He goes, the love of God has been poured out within where? Are you guys it up there? Come on now. The love of God has been poured out with where? Our hearts. You guys want our hearts. I'm the sick one. You're not sick. Are you kidding me? Within our hearts, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would, would dare even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And though while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So her heart went from lesser glories... Lesser loves, faulty affections. Basically, her heart went from inward bent to outward and upward. When our heart is open, Christians, it goes from an inward bent to outward and upward. Now, 
I was worried that maybe in writing this, you might be able to poke back and go, yeah, but how do you know this? How do you know this? How can you say that about Lydia? I think my defense that would be because it's true of me. This is what happened to me. I think it's true of all of us because I realize that our hearts work worshiping or madly in love with other lesser glories. And then when I was introduced to Christ, my heart supremely was his. My heart still vies for lesser glory and lesser loves every moment of every day. That is why that motto, follow your heart, oh my gosh, I'm going to go home and watch the Oscars in my sweatpants, and I'm going to hear every single person say what? Follow your heart. Yeah. What? Like 30 of you made it out of like 30 million people to be in that spot. Follow your heart. That's garbage. Why? Because it has this understanding that we believe whatever's inside of us is right or has the right to determine what is good. My goodness, if that doesn't bring us all the way back to the garden, I don't know what will. Follow your heart? Nasty, right? Gosh. We, the thing is, we have no idea. We do not know. And the more we do learn to know, the more we should realize we don't know. We don't know, and Lydia doesn't know. Lydia is having her heart open. It's like this heart surge, if you will. And it was then filled with the love of God. It's cracked open and filled with the love of God. Seeing and knowing what Christ has done so supremely, that wins her affections. That wins her affections. You see how practical and tangible this is? That's what wins her over. Is the story of Jesus wins her over. It wasn't a philosophical statement. It wasn't a scientific equation. And it never will be. For so many of us, I've had, again, so many conversations with people watching, you know, YouTube video after YouTube video of people debating theologians. I think, I don't remember who said it, but somebody says, nobody was converted to Jesus Christ by a winning of an argument. It is so true of this as well. Her heart was open because she had the love of God poured out and she understood everything in that moment. Paul completed the story for her. And he goes, Jesus. And that story, that love story, this tremendous story, won all of her affections and thus fills her like a basin overflowing with God's love. And get this, she now loves what God loves. Her happiness is wrapped around intertwined with God's happiness. She now has a broken heart over the same circumstances that break God's heart. She now cares about what God cares about. Hearts of stone becomes a heart of flesh, a heart of life. I mean, that's transformation of the heart. Not because she really changed the way of her thinking, even though that helps, or through effort or hard work, or not by keeping some strong list of things that transformation take place, but rather the good news of Jesus, who died for the ungodly, changed what her heart loved most. I love having these conversations with Pastor Lorenzo and we talk about people who may be struggling. And it's so easy for the church or for people or for discipleship groups or accountability groups to condemn and demonize. That's so bad, that's so bad. So But rather, and this is what Lorenzo is so good at reminding me and so many others in our discipleship group or whatever, is it's stop hitting that over and over again and start showing them a greater love. Start pointing them to something greater, not the lesser than. This is what changes Lydia's life. This is what opens her heart by changing what she worshipped. 
could it be, could it be too easily said that our friends, who many of us know, who have been with us for a while, or whatever it is in your past, have denied the faith of Jesus, have denied the Bible, have turned the truths of the Bible, have they done that because they have found a new love? Could that be said of the people that we are heartbroken who are no longer sitting next to us? Is it as simple as, you know, they've, they've got a new love. they found a new love. There's something that was greater or needful in their heart in that instance. Lydia proves this. Lydia totally proves her new love because her heart was given away. She now gives her life away. Look at, look at this verse again. She urged us. Luke writes down, the author. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, if you think I am now a follower of Christ, if you would say I'm converted, if you would say I am saved, if you would say I'm a beloved of God's, come to my house and stay. Does anybody have um, like those grandmas or moms? <laughs> like when you visit and they're just so badly wanting to feed you? So anybody's like that? Oh my gosh, it drives me bonkers. Let me make you some spaghetti. No, I'm, not, I'm fine. We have leftover tuna. Graham, I'm fine. Here's some toast. All right, all right. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> happens every time. Friends for Lydia, much like the grandmas, the proof of a genuine conversation is she just kept giving of herself. The proof of a genuine turning over of a life to Jesus is the giving of oneself away. Now, I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon, old school preacher, say it far heavier so I don't have to. I'm going to read his words. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? <laughs> this is what Charles Spurgeon said. He's so great. Here's what he says. Brethren, I do not think much of a conversion where it does not make much, does not touch a man's possessions. And those people who pretend to be Christ's people and yet live only for themselves and do nothing for him or for his church, give only sorry evidence of having been born again. Now, Spurgeon doesn't hold back, and I feel like I would be shortchanging the moment, or even Spurgeon himself, if I didn't ask. But has God's love been poured into our hearts? But has it soaked to the point of our things or our finances or our times or our talents or our treasures? Has it soaked so deeply that every little part of our life is saturated with the love of God? It's poured out. It's not a little eyedropper. It says it's poured out, as we read earlier. And it comes down to everything we have or who we are. Only you can assess that. No, no, I'm holding this back. I'm holding this back. I'm not doing this and I'm not doing this. Okay? How about this? How about this? And I believe this is even more dangerous. Has Christianity or the church or worship or communion or community and the Bible, is this just something we run through the motions now with? Is there something we love more but still uphold the rituals with God? A really crass, bothersome illustration would be a man who buys his wife flowers after an affair? Are we running through the emotions of an outward sign that our inward heart is fully his 
and yet it's just empty ritual. Christians, hear me out. One of the great pain points in the heart of God is spiritual placation or empty ritual. Very, very cheesy example, but I think it'll make my point. If you know the story, and even better if you know the actual written work, not just the film, but the Tin Man. Think of the Tin Man. Or as he's referred to in the kid's book, he's referred to the Tin Woodsman, I believe. But what did the Tin Man want in Wizard of Oz? Anybody remember? A heart? Side note, you remember he just got that weird clock thing? And he totally got like, oh, what is it? I'll hang it on myself. But he didn't really get a heart, remember that? In the movie, it's stupid. <laughs> In the classic literature, though, in the classic literature, he worked himself to death. The tin man worked tirelessly and without purpose. And the book actually says he did this because he had no heart nor soul. He just mechanically went about his work as if he was dead already. And outside, he rusted. Remember, they had to keep oiling him, right? He rusted and he decayed and he eventually was an empty shell. To us, the Tin Man, to us, we just call that, not the Tin Man, we just call that religion. That's just religion. Jesus is not a fan of religion. We as a church do not want to be a fan of religion. When Jesus, think about this, this is a very famous story in the Bible, when Jesus was face to face with the spiritually complacent, the spiritually complacent, he said this, very famous words of Christ. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. This has got to be some of the most gut-wrenching words to hear Christ say to anybody who believe that they are going about his work or God's work, running through the motions. The people work tirelessly and rust and decay and they're confused because they have their love, they have their affections elsewhere. It's what I want to do, it's who I want to be, it's in who, who I want to marry, it's in my, my purpose or my this or that. It's in, I mean, if someone else or something else has won our hearts and we still operate as if God is ultimate, then we have to be aware of the Sabbath. I hope we haven't confused religion and rules with a relationship with God. So many people confuse religion and rules. If I just follow X, Y, and Z, show up and do this or that, sign up and do this or that, I have a relationship with God. What does God want? God wants a total being before our doing. God wants the being. God wants to be with the being. And that happens when we take our hearts and we put them in his, and when he has won them, with his outrageous, outrageous son. To think that all God wants is service and obedience or brown nosing or anti-intellectualism is simply not true. God did not face death in his son Jesus for more compliance or lip service. So hear this. So knowing that about the heart, you can give all of your money to this church or any other organization. You could serve every week open your home to everyone, do 85 million gallons of chicken broth at a soup kitchen. You can attend every event and know every verse memorized. But what's the point if we not have not love for God? What is the point? 
What is the point? The type of love that Lydia proved with her life, that Lydia modeled, that is one of the reasons that I would love for us to see in this moment why it is crucial, why it is crucial that we as a community push one another, that they do not become, like I said, the spiritually complacent or empty rituals. We push one another to constantly make sure our affections are for him and him alone. When we start seeing one another go this way or that way, we need to be there and constantly guardrail and steal them back, steer them back to the Lord and his incredible truth. I'm losing my voice even more. Think of um, communion. Christians, this is totally for you. The double-stack cups, this incredible practice, the sacrament. I love that we have it set up in such a way where you actually have to get up out of your chair, that I have to get up, get, up out, get up out of my chair. Because it takes this understanding of Jesus, the good news of Jesus and his sacrifice, and get this, and makes it going from being a doctrine to, to being considered, oh yeah, that's interesting, to actually a reality that is to be consumed. We're supposed to digest this and ingest this. It should be thus, for every time we gather, it should be impossible for us to consume in our gut that horrific, tragic, unbelievable execution, the godly for the ungodly, to just write a check or show up once in a while or just to serve here and there. This should be a reminder that this is more than just writing checks or volunteering. Communion preaches to us that as we swallow it, that he wants everything in our inside, not just our outside. I would encourage you today, as you go to the people on your right, over there on that back wall, you go to people on your left on that back wall for prayer requests, I would unbelievably encourage you, if you have found lesser affections or lesser glories dominating your hearts or your loves or your attention, today as we worship, if you realize that as we sing songs, I would encourage you to take this very, very famous Jewish prayer that they would recite twice a day. And you take it to the prayer team, you take it to the floor, but it says this, and allow me to read it to you, and I'll have to sink into our heart, and it's straight, it's beautiful. But this is what they pray twice a day. It says this, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Take, these, take to heart these instructions with which I charge you this day and press them upon your children. Recite them when you stay at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them serve as a symbol on your forehead. Inscribe them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Love the Lord with all of your heart. Let me pray for you.